In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us many things that God does for the believer. But this phrase tells us why God does them. It's according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Today, we will be discussing the eternal decrees of God. Welcome again to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can always email me. That's doctrine for the number four, doxology at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at the real bear martin. Now, to get us started, let me define for us the the doctrine of the eternal decrees of God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And so here's a, a few definitions. From eternity, God has had an unchangeable, unconditional, and sovereign plan, which he comprehends and determines all things and events that come to pass. All right. Uh, another one by John MacArthur. So the first one was sort of a summary of a few different statements by Martin Lloyd-Jones. The second one here from John MacArthur is this, God's decree is his eternal plan, whereby according to his decretive will and for his glory, he foreordained everything that comes to pass. All right. Now, John MacArthur uses a phrase there, decretive will. And so let me define that. And that I think will really help you as you're studying the Bible, as you come across uh, different uses of the will of God. You can, you can think about the will of God as two different types of will. Okay. So God's decretive will has to do with his eternal decree. And so for the most part, this is what we will be discussing today. Um, so God's decretive will, another, some, uh, it's also known as his secret will, his sovereign will, his absolute will, or his efficacious will. Okay. Basically, God's decretive will includes his purposes for all of human history. And we cannot break or thwart God's decretive will. It will happen. And, and this will will be executed by God's sovereignty. And, and there's, there's no stopping it. It will happen. And this was decided by God in eternity past. Okay. So he foreordained everything, every single event that takes place. God foreordained that to take place in eternity past. All right, so that would be God's decretive will, and basically, if I talk about God's decree today or um, God's you know will, usually that's what I'm going to be referring to in today's lesson. Okay, now another type of God's will is His preceptive will. Uh, another way of saying this is God's revealed will. And when we think about the decretive will versus the preceptive will, let me remind you of a very popular verse in this um, in this series, and that's Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So this would be referring to the God's secret will, His decretive will. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. And so the preceptive will, the God's revealed will. 
will has to do with his law, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments that God has given to his people. Now, the decretive will is never broken or thwarted, okay? We we cannot change that. It will not change. Now, God's preceptive will, his revealed will, his laws are broken every day. And so that's certainly a difference between the two. Charles Hodge, a, a theologian talking about the God's decretive will and preceptive will, says this, quote, God never decrees to do or to cause others to do what he forbids. He may decree to permit what he forbids. He permits men to sin, although sin is forbidden. Okay, and so what he means by that here is that God will allow, as part of God's decretive will, his eternal decree, every event that he has foreordained before he created anything, he allows men to sin, and that's part of his decretive will. But in their sinning, they are breaking God's preceptive will. And so what we're what I'm trying to be very clear to say is that God is not forcing people, as part of his decretive will, God is not forcing people to break his preceptive will. That that is not in conflict, okay? He allows and permits people to break his preceptive will, but he does not force them to do it, okay? For example, God allowed Judas to betray Jesus. He did not force Judas to do it. Judas is guilty of that sin. Uh, In a similar way, God raised up Pharaoh for the specific purpose of displaying his power by defeating Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That that was the reason God raised him up. Romans 9.17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so did Pharaoh sin in how he treated the Israelites? Absolutely. And is is did God raise him up for that purpose? Yes, but God was not forcing Pharaoh to sin. Okay? And so God's decretive will and his preceptive will, they, they're, they're different, but they're not in conflict with one another. God is not forcing us to break his preceptive will in as part of his decretive will. Okay? So I know that it gets pretty wordy there. Um, with this de- decretive and preceptive and, and those types, types of things. Uh, but how should the Christian think about this? What's the Christian mindset as we approach these two different types of, of the will of God, okay, the decretive will and the preceptive will? Number one, the Christian is to trust the decretive will of God. God has an eternal plan. God, God is not surprised by anything. So we trust in God's eternal plan. And we know that as believers, that God is working that plan for our good. We, we trust that. So that's number one. Number two, the Christian is to obey the preceptive will of God. Okay, R.C. Sproul says this, talking about the, these two wills. One of the great tragedies of contemporary Christendom 
is the preoccupation of so many Christians with the secret, decretive will of God to the exclusion and neglect of the preceptive will. We want to peek behind the veil to catch a glimpse of our personal future. We seem more concerned with our horoscope than with our obedience, more concerned with what the stars in their courses are doing than with what we are doing. It is easier to engage in ungodly prying into the secret counsel of God than to apply ourselves to the practice of godliness. All right, and that's from R.C. Sproul's uh, little booklet called Can I Know God's Will? All right, so uh, that's uh, that's our approach. Christians should trust the decretive will of God, but seek to obey the preceptive will of God, okay? Now, right after talking about how Christians are tempted to try to peek behind the veil, that is not what we are doing today. What I want to do today is just simply explain what the Bible tells us about God's eternal decree. We're not trying to figure out everything that God is going to do in the future or anything like that, but biblically, God has given us some information about his decretive will, and we need to know that and and so so that we can better trust the decrees of God and, and worship God properly and glorify God in that. Okay, and so our our approach is to recognize that some of these things that we're going to learn about the decrees of God, the eternal decrees of God, are are difficult for our minds to wrap around. So we need to recognize that that in our human nature we are going to be offended sometimes when it when it seems like 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 for instance we're going to want to defend the idea of human free will. Okay, and so so we need to be aware of that and and constantly be evaluating our thoughts com- and comparing them to Scripture. Along those same lines, we want to be biblical, not philosophical. Now, I'm not against philosophy. There is a healthy form of philosophy that causes us to think properly about things. We and so we we it is God honoring to think with uh, logical reasoning and and things like that. Um, God is the one who who has given us that the ability to to think that way. Um, so I'm not saying all philosophy is bad, but there are some things that are that God reveals to us that we cannot quite wrap our heads around. We just came out of studying the Trinity. And so we we affirm the truths taught in scripture. We first want to be biblical before we are philosophical because there's going to be some things that we we can't quite settle uh in our minds, okay? So we come to the Bible with humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I, this is a great quote here. Faith, he says, quote, faith is a readiness to submit oneself to the biblical limits. Say that again. Faith is a readiness to submit oneself to the biblical limits. And that's exactly what we want to do today in thinking about God's eternal decrees, okay? Um, And then, so as part of our approach here, we want to focus on God, not man, okay? So God's eternal decrees, if we are focused on God and God's purposes and what God tells us about his eternal decree and purposes in Scripture— 
if we focus on God, then this stuff is quite easy, okay? It is it is simple stuff if we focus on God's purposes. It, like I said in the in the opening, it's according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so this is easy stuff if we're focusing on God's purposes. And and so we want to simply hold on to the truths taught in scripture. Is man responsible for rejecting God? Yes, that's obvious in scripture. Does God work everything according to his good will and eternal decree? Yes, that's clearly taught in scripture. Are we to think of ourselves as robots in God's creation? No, Scripture does not treat us that way. Does God force people to sin? I've talked about this already. No, he doesn't. Scripture does not uh, speak that way. And so we want to hold on to the basic truths taught in Scripture as we evaluate what Scripture tells us about God's eternal decrees, okay? Now, there's a a few different like uh, statements that I want to walk through today, three basic statements, and then we'll, we'll discuss those. Statement one, from eternity, God has had an unchangeable plan with reference to his creatures. Basically, there is an eternal decree, okay? This is not something that we're making up. There is an eternal decree. One way we see this in Scripture is the phrase before or from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is, this is talking about people worshiping the beast, okay? Um, So, and all who, who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So this phrase before the foundation of the world is is it, it shows us that God has an eternal plan. Um, also, we we hear we read verses about God's definite plan. Okay, Acts two twenty three. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in time people crucified Jesus Christ, okay? But this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In a few chapters later in Acts, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there is certainly an eternal decree of God. Before the foundation of the world, all of this was settled in God's mind, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, God never has an afterthought. Nothing is accidental, haphazard, uncertain, or fortuitous. Everything that God has done and has brought to pass is according to his own eternal plan, and it is fixed, certain, unchangeable, and absolute. All right? And so an eternal plan does exist. Okay? That's that's kind of the summary of statement one. Statement number two, the plan of God comprehends and determines all things and events of every kind that come to pass. Nothing happens outside of God's eternal decree. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So chance 
does not cause anything. Sometimes we we speak of chance this way as as if chance caused something. Chance is a word we use to account for things that are too difficult for us to calculate. All right. So when we think about chance, we think of uh, rolling dice or or flipping a coin. So think about flipping a coin. For for those of us who don't really care for for math. Um, this would be like the word problem from hell, okay? But but if you knew the the force of the thumb flicking, the exact weight distribution of the coin, the wind direction and the speed, the altitude, humidity, and so forth, all the variables. If if you knew all the variables and could account for them, then you would know for with certainty if the coin is going to land on heads or tails. Okay, so so chance is just is is a word we use when we can't factor in all the variables, but it's it's not really a thing. Okay, God is in control and and of, of all the variables. He he knows everything. Okay, and so there is there is nothing left to chance in the mind of God. Also, when it comes to God's eternal decree. God is not just declaring the ends, okay? He's also declaring the means to those ends. And he uses the free, voluntary actions of created beings as part of his eternal decree. I think one of the best verses, when we think about trying to settle this in our mind of God has an eternal decree, but yet still uh, humans are free to choose. One of the best verses for that is Genesis fifty twenty. Genesis fifty twenty. This is talking about this is Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, and then they think he's basically they they don't they don't know what happens to him after they sell him into slavery, but they think he's pretty much dead. Years later, Joseph. Uh, of course, by God's providence, Joseph has risen to second in command in Egypt, and the, there's a famine throughout most of the known world, and so the brothers go to Egypt to buy food, and then they encounter Joseph. Joseph reveals who he is, and so Joseph says this to them, Genesis fifty twenty, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that the many people should be kept alive as they are today. So think about that. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Just like the the brothers had a purpose, and that purpose was evil, God had an overarching purpose, and that purpose was for good. Now, did was God forcing the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery? Absolutely not. They freely chose to commit evil against him. But God meant that same action for good, okay? So you can ask these questions from that verse. What were the brothers' intentions? They were evil. When did they decide to sell Joseph into slavery? Well, this was in time. This was after Joseph had a dream about his brothers and family bowing down to him. Joseph was given a coat of many colors, a, a, a very nice coat from his father. So this made the brothers jealous, and then they ultimately decided to sell him into slavery. How did Joseph get to Egypt? Well, slave traders passed by. It was the, the free actions of men and, and women were part of Joseph's life as he rose to second in command, okay? So all of this is, is based on the free decisions of, of men and women. 
But what was God's intention? It was good to save many lives. When did God decide that Joseph would would be sold into slavery? God decided that all of this would take place in eternity past as his as part of his eternal decree before the foundation of the world, okay? So God knew about all of this beforehand. God is not scrambling around in heaven. He, we, we're not freely choosing things, and then God is scrambling around in heaven trying to figure out a way to, uh, to make this all work out, okay? The verse does not say, you meant evil against me, but God turned it into something good. No, you meant evil against me, and God meant that's the same evil action. God meant it for good. So he he's not he's not scrambling around in heaven. We cannot think of of God that way. Okay. Um, also, just to point out, God is not the author of evil. I've I've kind of mentioned this several times, but James one thirteen says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one." So God is not the author of evil. The brothers, in Joseph's instance, they are freely choosing to sell him into slavery, okay? So that's statement two. Statement three, all the decrees of God are unconditional and sovereign. All the decrees of God are unconditional and sovereign. When we think about the eternal decrees of God, we are constantly worried about man's free will, okay? But the Bible speaks of God's free will. God is completely free. Man is free, but God is ultimately free. God is completely free to do whatever he wants to do. He is sovereign over all things. That, that's what sovereign means. He, he is in control of everything. And so as this statement three, all the decrees of God are unconditional and sovereign. So God is sovereign. He's free to do whatever he wants. And what he decides to do is unconditional. It is based on his own free internal desires. It is, it is not based on anything that we are doing as far as um, God is not looking at us, seeing what we're doing, and then deciding to to. Um, decree good or evil for us, okay? That, that's not the way it's working. Psalm 115.3 proclaims, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, all right? And so God's decrees are formulated based on his own free desires. They are not formulated because God looked through time, saw what we would do, liked that, and then decided to decree that it happened that way. God's eternal decree comes first. Okay, this idea of God looking through time is not biblical, okay, as far as a basis for his decree. This idea is false. In Romans 9, 11 through 13, we clearly see that God's choices are not dependent on what we do, good or bad, okay? So this is talking about Jacob and Esau, and it says, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this is these are tough verses to swallow if we are focused on man, 
okay, and man's free will and, and those types of things. Remember, I said this is easy, simple stuff if we are focused on God. He is sovereign. He's free to do whatever he wants to do, and so so it's simple in that regard. Now, Paul, writing this 2,000 years ago, anticipates objections to this passage, So, and he, and he, he anticipates two basic objections, and so the very next verses, he answers one of those objections. All right, so verse 14, Romans 9, starting in verse 14 and reading through verse 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay? So, right there, it's very, very clear that it is not, well, in the previous verses, it's not what we have done, good or bad, as to the reason God chooses to to save us and, and not others, okay? So it is based on God's free choice. God is ultimately free. We, we can't be so concerned with man's free will that we destroy God's free will, okay? He's not bound um, by us, okay? Now, also, God is not forced to give an equal amount of grace to everybody. If grace is required of God, then it is no longer grace, it is unbiblical to think that God gives equal opportunities to everyone. Just read the Bible, and it's very clear that's not the case. Did Pharaoh and Moses have equal opportunity? How about Jacob and Esau? What about Paul and Judas? Okay, God literally struck Saul with blindness and prevented him from continuing to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus, knowing Judas was going to betray him, what did Jesus say to him? What you have to do, do quickly. Okay? And so, yes, you can you can say, well, Judas had the opportunity to be with Jesus for three, three and a half years and, and sit under his ministry. Absolutely. Judas sinned against more light and more revelation than than pretty much anybody else that, that's ever lived. Um, but Judas is guilty of his sin and Paul was Paul or Saul was persecuting Christians, killing Christians, and God intervenes in his life and and changes him. Was Judas struck with blindness to to prevent him from betraying Jesus? Was did Jesus try to prevent Judas from betraying him in any way? All right, um, you must realize that if you are a Christian, it is because God has worked in your life similar to what He did with Saul. Okay, he stepped in. God stepped in. You were dead in your sin, a child of wrath, but God intervened, changed your heart of stone to a heart of flesh, revealed your sin to you and your desperate need for a savior. The only way Jesus Christ became gloriously beautiful to you. So you trust in him and you seek to walk according to God's law. That is all that all happens because of God's grace in your life. And so sometimes as Christians we think, wow, Paul has this amazing testimony, or maybe other people that you knew have this amazing testimony. Guess what? They're all amazing. They're all God stepping in and saving you. Okay? 
Now, to get back to our, our question here that, that Paul poses in Romans 9, is there any injustice on God's part? Keep this in mind. At the end of time, when it's all said and done, nobody will have a problem with God's justice. In light of the, the truth, okay, nobody will even think to call God unjust. What do the, the sinners say in Revelation? They, they say, you know, hide us, hide us from the Lamb who is going to judge us, because they know they deserve judgment. Psalm 98.9 says, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Revelation 15.3, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Revelation 16.5, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Revelation 16.7, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And Revelation 19.2, For his judgments are are true and just. That will be what people are saying at, at the end of time, that God's judgments are all true and just. So is there any injustice on God's part? Absolutely not, okay? Now, part two, uh, the second objection that, that Paul addresses is found in Romans 9, starting in verse 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, okay? Yes, the eternal decrees of God, they will happen. You cannot break or or change them, okay? So that's what uh, Paul is talking about. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul, here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, Douglas Moo, in his commentary to the—it's called The Letter to the Romans— in commenting on this passage, he, he says this. He says, before analyzing what Paul does say in response to this objection, we do well to note what he does not say. He makes no reference to human works or human faith, whether foreseen or not, as the basis for God's act of hardening. Okay? So, Paul is Paul does not try to defend God, maybe in the way that you think he he should. He just says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Again, Paul is emphasizing God's freedom in uh, choosing, just like a potter reaches over and there's this big lump of clay. A potter reaches over, he grabs one lump, and he starts making a, a vessel that may be used in the temple for very honorable use. That same potter could reach over in the same clay, and he could make a vessel for dishonorable. He could make a, a bucket that's going to be used as a, a toilet, okay? So he can. the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay, okay? And so... the that's Paul is again defending God's sovereignty and freedom, or or simply proclaiming it, not even defending it. God God needs no defense there, but um, he's just proclaiming that God is sovereign. Now, also it's he says, "But who are you, O man, to answer back to God?" Here's our responsibility as mankind: we are to obey the preceptive will of God, like we talked about earlier. God has 
has given us exactly what we are to do, and that's what we are held responsible for. It is, it is not for us to question the eternal decrees of God. We rather should look to obey the preceptive will of God. Because guess what? As you as you trust in God, as, as you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, as you follow what the Bible teaches, then you don't have to worry about all of these judgments of God. God in His grace, He, he doesn't have to do this at all. The, he owes us nothing. Although the Lord owes us nothing, He gives us the promise to, to all those who would hear to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who was sent into the world to die for those sins. He never has to give us this promise, but out of His goodness and grace, He does. You can know that you are chosen by the potter to be a vessel for honorable use. You can know that. How? You cling to Jesus Christ. You desire forgiveness through Him. As you see Jesus, you will truly begin to see the Father, and you will realize the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart all along. So there is the promise. You, you can't come to this text and just you know say, well, God must not exist because I can't agree with this philosophically. That, that's, not, that's not the excuse here. That, that excuse is never given in Scripture. Our job as Christians is to obey what we do know from the Lord and not to question the eternal decrees of God. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now think about that phrase. For those who love God, all things work together for good. The, our responsibility is to love God, okay? But then the next phrase says, for those who are called according to his purpose. So right here in the same verse, we have a, a human responsibility, a human response to God, to, to love God, okay? But it also tells us that it's those who are called according to his purpose. So we have human free will and God's sovereignty right there together. And so to close out this episode, let me give you another example of this, human free will and God's sovereignty right side by side. It's all over Scripture. You can, you can see it tons of places. But for our closing verse, this is John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that is, received the, the Son, the, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 